they pulled down the side of the isolate and everyone said, you need to look at her. She's beautiful. And I did. And it was truly one of the greatest and most heartbreaking moments of my life. Welcome. I am your host, Nicole Nyberg. I am a neonatal nurse practitioner and also a proud preemie mama to my son, William, who just happens to be a former 23-weeker. So if you are a current or former NICU parent, you have come to the right place. I have been exactly where you are, and I know what you're going through. We will be discussing all things related to the neonatal intensive care unit for preterm and term infants, as well as some of the emotions and struggles parents endure along the way in the NICU and beyond. So tune in and get ready to become educated and empowered. This is the Empowering NICU Parents Podcast. While I make every effort to broadcast correct and up-to-date information, medicine is constantly evolving and advancing, and I continue to learn new things each day. Every NICU baby and their journey is different, and every institution varies in their practices as well. So please, always consult your obstetrician and your infant's physician for any medical issues or concerns. I am presenting from my personal experience and knowledge. My opinions do not represent that of my employers. For our most recent podcast episode, I sat down with Jessica Wolf, a mother who has endured loss and two very different NICU journeys. For part one of this podcast, she shares personal details on her very complicated twin pregnancy and the difficult choices they had to make along the way. She reflects back on regrets both she and her husband Pat have experienced, as well as what has helped them cope through their daughter Lily's 256-day NICU stay. Jessica explains what helped them make the decision whether or not Lily should have a tracheostomy placed, and she speaks candidly about what their expectations were after Lily's tracheostomy placement versus their reality. She offers frank advice for NICU families, especially those with similar situations who have children with feeding issues, ostomies, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, or BPD, pain and medication withdrawal, tracheostomies, and what going home looked like for their family with a ventilator-dependent child. You will be amazed by what this family has been through, but even more so by their strength and resiliency. Sweet Lily has touched so many lives in her short four years, and this is just the beginning of her story. I know she'll pull at your heartstrings as well. So sit back and listen to part one of This Family's Story with Jessica Wolf. This episode of our podcast is sponsored by Neotech. Whether you are a NICU parent or a NICU clinician, it is likely that you have encountered Neotech products. Neotech manufactures innovative products specifically for newborns and patients in the NICU. With their goal to make a difference in the quality of treatment for premature infants and neonates, they also strongly consider the impact of their products on parents and clinicians. When it comes to providing neonatal products for respiratory support, Neotech has several to choose from. Neotech offers the ram cannula, Neoseal nasal prongs, a chin strap, the Neobar to secure endotracheal tubes, the Neofoam pulse oximeter, and the EasyCare soft touch tracheostomy holder for those infants with trachs. As a mother to a micropremie, 
my son had his endotracheal tube that remained secure with neobars for several weeks, and he also used the ram cannula for several months. As an NNP and clinician, I know how valuable it is to have products in the NICU that not only effectively keep endotracheal tubes and tracheostomies in place, but those that also prevent skin irritation or trauma. To learn more about Neotech products, visit neotechproducts.com or find the link in our show notes. I know there are a lot of tips I love to give new NICU parents, but one of my favorite bits of advice is to always celebrate every milestone your baby or babies achieve during their NICU journey. If you have not figured it out already, you will quickly learn that your NICU baby is incredibly strong and resilient. The milestones they conquer each and every day will absolutely amaze you. Do not miss out on celebrating and capturing one single milestone along your baby's journey with our NICU milestone cards. We have a collection of 26 milestone cards that are unique, colorful, and gender neutral to help you capture every one of your baby's milestones during their time in the NICU. Each card has a place for you to write the date your baby surpassed that particular milestone so you will never forget it. I so wish I had beautiful milestone cards to see each achievement my son William surpassed from opening his eyes to no longer being on phototherapy, being weaned off the ventilator, to taking his first bottle, and yes, eventually graduating from the NICU. Go and grab your baby's set of downloadable milestone cards at empoweringnicuparents.com forward slash NICU products or find the link in our show notes. Now back to the episode. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Today, we have a very special guest, Jessica Wolf. So if you could just please tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, and where you live. So excited to be here. I'm Jess. I am the mother of three kids, twins, Lily and Autumn. Lily is four and Autumn was stillborn. And then a seven-month-old boy named Nolan. We live in central Illinois, about two and a half hours south of Chicago. And I'm currently kind of in a transitional role. I've been Lily's kind of caregiver, medical mom for the past four years. And we're kind of transitioning now to preschool, you know, out in the world post-COVID life. So things are, are looking kind of different around here. Fantastic. If you don't mind just sharing with us a little bit more about your pregnancy and then the events leading up to Lily and Autumn's birth. Yeah. So my husband, Pat, and I had gone through fertility treatments. It had taken us quite a while to get pregnant. We did kind of the, you know, traditional route and then added in medications and really were not expecting the road that we ended up having to, to take. But when I finally found out I was pregnant, we um, were not expecting twins at all. And there were there were twins on our ultrasound. Um, mm-hmm. So we were very excited, very surprised, very overwhelmed. But, you know, we were ready to, to do life with two little girls, we found out. My pregnancy was difficult. I was very sick in the first trimester had a lot of intermittent bleeding, um, like bright red blood bleeding. So I spent a lot of time in maternal fetal medicine, an OB, emergency room, 
but we were reassured every time ultrasounds looked good, heartbeats were strong. They were always measuring a little bit small, but um, never concerning enough to kind of raise red flags until our 20-week ultrasound. The anatomy scans showed that both girls were in less than the first percentile, and the Doppler study showed their cord flow was not adequate to provide them with the nutrients to grow. So I was monitored more closely um, from that point. And a couple weeks later, a maternal fetal medicine specialist that we worked with said that because their growth had slowed considerably and the cord flow had become absent. So they had absent end diastolic flow, meaning neither of them were getting any sort of adequate blood flow to the placentas. It was highly unlikely that either would make it to viability. So we were just absolutely shocked. It was, everything happened so fast. And in that span of just a few weeks, we went from like preparing for twins to hoping that every time we went to the doctor that they would both still be alive. I was admitted at 23 weeks with high blood pressure and ended up developing preeclampsia in that time. It was managed with medication, but it was very, very high still. And so they assumed that the IUGR diagnoses, the absent end diastolic flow, was a result of early onset preeclampsia. So, and there's not much you can do about that other than control it with, you know, medication and hope to get to, to viability. Right. So at 24 weeks exactly, I went for just another heartbeat check and stress test And we found out that Autumn had died um, sometime in, it was a span of two days. So sometime in the 48 hours since my last ultrasound. And then Lily was, her umbilical flow had reversed. So it was, you know, pretty dire at that point. So they admitted me, they approximated her weight in the upper 400 grams. And we met with a revolving door of, uh, neonatologists came up and (laughs) assured us that they would try everything to intubate her if we had to deliver her emergently. And they just weren't sure if they would be able to save her. So we were very prepared. We were not prepared, but we were, (laughs) we had heard and digested that neither of our children might make it. So I was admitted admitted at 24-0 and we made it to 24-3. Lily had some D cells and my health continued to decline. So they felt it was best to take her at 24 and three. And she came out at 504 grams and she was intubated immediately or shortly after birth um, with not the smallest size ET tube, one size up. So we made it. Um, And I was awake. It was an emergency C-section. I was awake. I chose not to see either of the girls. Once Lily was stabilized and they were able to transport her to the NICU, Pat was standing right above me and they wheeled the isolate. They pulled down the side of the isolate and everyone said, you need to look at her. She's beautiful. And I did. And it was truly one of the greatest and most heartbreaking moments of my life. That is the one thing that I remember. And then I went into preeclamptic shock and was a hair away from a seizure and 
I didn't get to see her then for another 24 hours. So it was really difficult first kind of few days into parenthood. So. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all that. I know it's a lot to relive and digest and it sounds like the whole pregnancy from beginning to end, unfortunately, was just full of a lot of mm-hmm. more downs and ups and just shocking information that you had to take in. If you don't mind me mm-hmm. asking, did you ever then look at Autumn amidst all that or because your health had declined and everything just kind of happened? Pat and I were adamant from the day we found out that either girl was unlikely to make it that we just we couldn't do it we didn't want to see her either of them you know we didn't want to see to have any part of it and in retrospect it is the biggest regret we will ever have we asked that she be cremated we did not want her ashes we had them placed in an ossuary in like a couple towns over. We just, we just couldn't, we couldn't do it. We couldn't handle it. So about four months after Lily came home from the NICU, so it was about around their first birthday, we both kind of freaked out and realized that we had made a gigantic mistake. We contacted the hospital and they had taken pictures for us of her just in case we ever decided that we wanted them. So we do have an album of amazing, beautiful pictures that we keep in a box with some other things of hers. There was a a teddy bear she was photographed with and a couple other things that they kept for us. And they are, they're my greatest treasures. So we don't have her, but we have her things. Right. And it's so, having gone through something similar, Mm -hmm. having a loss as well, it's I just know how difficult we had one that we lost at 14 weeks and I did see him and I spent time with him. And then we had one that was too early and we kind of did the same thing. We were just like, no, we don't need the remains. And, you know, I don't, didn't ask for genetics. And so it's just, you wish you didn't have so much trauma and grief in that moment because you're not at a point that you can make wise or sound decisions. But I'm so thankful that usually labor and delivery departments and there's specialized people that have a heart for that Mm -hmm. and a gift for that. And that Mm -hmm. thank God that they did do the pictures and do the things because I know from personal experience that if you don't do that, Mm -hmm. just the regret to have that is is really difficult. So what we um, what we ended up doing too, we called the funeral home to see if they could exhume her ashes from the actuary. And the woman on the phone cried with me and was like, I'm so sorry, we can't do that. So what they ended up doing was making a little headstone and putting it on the actuary entrance. And so she has her own little marker, which is so incredible that they did that. But we have had many conversations with them since then about giving kind of a grace period for that decision to be made. When they received her body, we had like 48 hours to go and sign all the paperwork. And at that point, we both, you know, we were so focused on trying to keep Lily alive. And and we were so, like you said, overcome with just incredible trauma and grief and everything that happened. I was still unstable in the hospital. It was crazy. So the ability to have a little bit more time to make that decision would be huge for families like ours. 
Absolutely. I agree. So tell us a little bit more about Lily's time in the NICU Mm -hmm. and kind of her start and her journey and um, anything that you'd like to share. Sure. So we were in the NICU with you. So that's how we know each other. We were in the NICU together. Nicole was one of our nurse practitioners. We were in the NICU with Lily for eight months. It was 256 days. And she gave everybody a really difficult time. Um, She was intubated for her or trached for her entire stay. We had on multiple occasions attempted to extubate her in a very like planned, controlled way. And she never really lasted more than 12 hours. Our biggest and first hurdle um, in the first month of life, she never pooped. She she was not stooling. The contrast studies and x-rays and everything that, that was done really were not giving enough information to find out why. It, did, it didn't look like there was a bowel perf. It didn't look like there was neck. It didn't look like there was, you know, ro- malrotation or anything. But something clearly was wrong. <laughs> and her stomach, her abdomen would distend and push up on her lungs. And she would have then have a very hard time breathing with the ventilator and she was on high frequency oscillation like it was a mess so at 30 days 28 days of life I used to know this like (laughs) I think it was 28 days of life one of our favorite humans on the planet her general surgeon took her down to surgery she was not even two pounds and gosh she was she was really small and they did exploratory bowel surgery and she had a very difficult time in surgery. She was fluid overloaded and she she coded. It was a mess. And at that point, our, the surgeon did her very best to prepare us that, you know, we, we're not going to know the outcome of this. She may not survive surgery. If she does, we may have some lifelong complications. So she opened her up and they found a bowel perforation at her jejunum. So right at the beginning of where her intestine, you know, where her stomach meets her intestines. And rather than reconnecting her, all of her intestines, small and large intestines, were matted into this tiny little ball because they had never been used. And so rather than reconnecting her and attempting that, she made an ostomy. And so she had a jejunostomy for several months until she was larger and able to gain weight appropriately and her respiratory status was a tiny bit more stable. So that was kind of part one. And then once we were able to feed her through an NG tube and she could stool out of the ostomy, we really focused heavily on her lungs. She had a bunch of different bacterial infections. She ended up with MSSA, so like the antibiotic sensitive staph infection and just all of these things. It was like one hit after another. And every single time her respiratory status would just decline significantly. So she ended up still intubated and on very, very high ventilator settings right around her due date. And so we started having the conversation, let's connect her intestines to her stomach and see how that goes. But it's more than likely for her to be able to get home and to thrive and not be sedated anymore, more than likely that we would end up with a trach. And that's exactly what happens. She was trached at five months actual, two weeks adjusted. And 
we were devastated. You know, you and I have had many, many conversations about what you hear. You know, people say they're going to come home around their due date and they're going to be fine. And they're going to just like William came home on oxygen. And I will never forget you sitting with me the day before she was going to be traked and saying, I had William by myself while he was on oxygen and I was carrying a tank and him and all this stuff around the house. We made it work. We made it work. And that I have carried that with me forever because it's exactly what we did. We made it work. You do what you need to do to get your kid home and thriving. And we really kind of leaned into the whole trach life situation at that point. Um, we were very lucky to have one of Lily's primary bedside nurses was in the process of fostering another little kiddo who had a trach. So I learned so much from her and from watching, you know, his team do cares and suction and learn how to how to take care of his trait that I felt significantly more confident walking into our situation than if I hadn't had any sort of frame of reference for what it would look like. So a couple of things. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's fantastic. You may not remember this, but I was actually in the delivery room. So I was Were you really? Lily. I was. I yeah. I don't remember. And I think I've told you that, but, it, but yeah, yeah, again, there's so many things. Cause I was the one that I'm like, you have look to look at her. Like you have to look at her. And I was just telling somebody that I was going to be having this conversation with you. And it brought tears to my eyes because I remember that moment. I'm like, you, you have, I'm sorry, you have to look at her. And she actually made it out of the delivery room. She was not intubated, right. but I think it was shortly thereafter. thereafter that she ended up intubated. Yeah. I mean, I knew, yeah. I knew, I knew it was you. We've had this conversation. I knew it, but like, and the other thing I want to bring up, because I think in preparing for her trach, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember having conversations with you afterwards, too, because I feel like you may have been alluded to, we're going to get the trach, she's going to be fantastic, and she's yeah. going to go home. Yeah. And so talk a little bit more about after she actually got the trach, kind of what that latter half at the NICU stay yeah. like. Yeah, that was so difficult, because exactly like you said, I thought, right, we were going to put this piece of silicone in her neck. Things were going to turn around and we'd be out the door like three weeks later. We'll learn about cares and it'll be fine. And I did not consider the fact that she had been on significant amounts of pain medication and sedation for her entire life. And that would need to be weaned before we came home. I did not consider the fact that her respiratory, her lungs looked the same despite the piece of, of plastic in her neck or, you know, silicone in her neck, that things weren't magically solved. And that was an incredibly hard pill to swallow. Sitting there in the NICU at like day 150, where she was still on outrageously high Drager settings. She was withdrawing from fentanyl and morphine and phenobarbital and methadone and everything that she was on. And I thought to myself, what the F did we do? Why did we consent to this? We are still here. She's still trying to die all the time. We're still miserable. What did we do? And that was when I started searching the internet for other, you know, families who were going through similar things and kind of connected with other parents who were on the back end of 
pain withdrawal and who, you know, were adjusting to having their kids kind of coming home. And I saw that, you know, we're going to have to weather this like horrible period for things to get better. And so that was a really, really difficult, that was by far, I think the hardest part of our NICU stay because we were awake and aware and in tune with what was going on around us at that point. Like we had come out of a fog of, you know, trauma, 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 trauma. Okay, okay, okay. We had come out of that and realized where we were, what we were doing and how far we were from actually being home. I'm sure you felt like, yeah, you're so close. And then, then, you know, Mm -hmm. it you were just hit with this other wall, like, yeah. holy cow, we still have all of this. And I know months. you guys told us time and time and time again that, like, you're not going home anytime soon. But I was not able to internalize that and and apply it right. to our actual, you know, what was in front of me. So you mentioned that being probably one of the most difficult. Were there other difficult things that you want to share? And then the caveat with that those difficult things, what helped you and Pat get through or what were the positive things, whether they were people or yeah. things or, or other things that helped you through? So I think of our NICU stay as kind of broken up into different chunks, right? Like, so the emergency surgery at a month was a horrible time. And at that point, we just wanted to be left alone. And so the biggest thing during that like small baby unit phase of the NICU was having my mom as the point person for all communication with everyone else. We didn't have to talk to a soul. And that was amazing because I could not have handled at that point coming home from the NICU at nine or 10 at night and then fielding texts and calls from family and friends who wanted to know and who meant so well. But like at that point, especially we just could not it. So that was at that point, the biggest thing that we needed and the best way, you know, my mom that anyone could help was just understanding that we were like not able to communicate. And then that next chunk, once she had her ostomy and we worked on, you know, respiratory stuff around Thanksgiving, there was a new doc on service and it was Thanksgiving. So everyone, like the specialists were gone and it was not bare bones crew, but like it was not your robust, <laughs> let's have rounds right. with everybody, you know, group of staff. And she ended up contracting that MSSA and sitting at Thanksgiving dinner, which like looking back, my parents and, and Pat and I laugh all the time, like we cooked a turkey. <laughs> like <laughs> You make mashed potatoes. Like, what the heck were we thinking? And like, so we all just sat around the table crying. But we, that was another one of those situations I will never forget who had her that night. I called every 30 minutes. She had maxed out the ventilator and they were talking about putting her back on the jet or do we need to transfer her somewhere where there's ECMO or what are we going to do? Because she was so sick and she maxed out respiratory support. So it was horrible. (laughs) It was a horrible Thanksgiving. And Mm -hmm. we all, you know, we can laugh about it now, but it truly, it was, it was a very harrowing experience. And I felt so bad because all I wanted to do was be there, but we, we tried so hard to make it this, you know, holiday. It was just fake for all of us. So that was brutal. And then you know, the reconnection was a a celebratory surgery, which is so funny to say, but we were looking forward to that one. And then the trach was 
like three weeks later. And, and that was kind of our next big, big hurdle before medication wean. So throughout that time, I mean, it was really, really awesome to see kind of who came out of the woodwork to support us. Our friends were amazing in that they, you know, they cooked us meals. They sent us gift cards to restaurants in the area so that that was something that was just completely off of our plate. We didn't have to worry about. We could just pick up Culver's or something on the way home and not have to worry about cooking our neighbors, our dog out in the middle of the day sometimes. So we didn't have to come home midday to let him out. Just people really stepped up in ways that we couldn't think of because we were in, you know, we had trauma brain. We didn't know what we needed. And so from some of our closest, the people closest to us, we would get, I hope everything's okay. Let us know if you need anything. And boy, I was not able to access what I need. What I needed was like a shower and four days consecutive sleep. And to just be inside of my child's eyes a lot with her. Like, that was what I needed. <laughs> I didn't know how to articulate that we needed our grass cut. And and I also felt horrible. Like, I don't, I'm not going to have somebody go grocery shopping for me. I'm not going to ask you. So we very, right. very much appreciated the people who didn't ask or say. They just did. So that was, it was really awesome. Right. And you bring up such a great point because that's exactly what I was going to say is if there's anybody listening that has a family or friend that is going through, whether they have a baby in the NICU or or any family member that is sick or ill or hospitalized, it is best just to do, you know, whether it's a meal or a gift card or money, or like you said, mowing the grass, because when you are amongst the trauma and you have so many other, you know, as a parent for a baby in the NICU, you're making decisions or trying to think of the right things to do for your child. And so that's the last thing on your mind. And just as you said, I was the same way. I don't ask for help very well. And so it almost feels, you know, you're just not used to asking for it. So I don't, I don't even want to tell you what to do because then I'll end up saying, okay, I'll let you know versus just, you know, somebody doing something. And then you can very simply say, thank you. Every single thing was well-meaning every single you know let us know or it was all very very well-meaning just not as helpful as like you said just just doing so that's always my biggest suggestion as well yes definitely so in preparing to take Lily home so you know I know the NICU journey was long but um, obviously it came to a point where you guys were getting ready to take her home Um, what were your thoughts and it almost feels silly to say, did you feel prepared? But where were you, where was your, sorry, where was your frame of mind at? And how, I guess, like, you know, you're excited, but obviously nervous at the same time. So coming home or preparing to come home was really, really overwhelming. The amount of medical knowledge that we had kind of accumulated while she was in the NICU was helpful to a point. We, you know, were very comfortable and well-versed in, you know, suctioning out mucus from her, her trach and doing the the nightly trach tie changes and trach changes and cares. Like those were things that with time and with practice, they become like muscle memory. We were not comfortable or prepared for emergencies in the way that we really needed to be. We, you know, simulated stuff a lot with our bedside nurses, like 
one in particular would come up with these like crazy scenarios. <laughs> you're driving alone. You're on the highway. Um, you're going 60 miles an hour and you can't pull off. And she starts desatting. What do you do? And we, you know, we'd go through, I bet you can think, you know, who <laughs> set up a car in the, <laughs> in the aisle, but you know, that's helpful to a point. We had no experience bagging her. We had no experience emer- with an emergency trach change. And we went home knowing that these things could happen, but not really feeling very prepared to handle them. And so <laughs> I have since spoken with many, 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 many other trach moms, trach parents, whose hospitals have very comprehensive programs for training. You need to have this many trach changes under your belt. You need to be able to do trach tie changes by yourself. You need to have bagged your child. You need to go through X, Y, and Z in order for us to feel comfortable discharging you. We went through CPR certification for a child without a trach. That's not helpful. Right. So knowing that there are these really comprehensive programs out there, my advice to parents in hospitals like ours who were not like, uber equipped to send trach families home is to seek out information from like Seattle Children's or CHOP or the really big hospitals where they, you know, discharge trach kids every day. They have so many resources on their websites that would have been incredibly helpful in a situation like ours. Yes. And just one of those things too, that it's just every hospital or institution is different, but it is good to know that there are places out there that have great, you know, well-versed programs in, you know, preparation because, you know, as much as you or nurses tried to prepare you, there's going to be those circumstances that happen that you, you know, don't feel prepared for. I am so sorry to cut it off there and to leave the interview so abruptly, but as you can imagine, Jessica and I had a lot more to talk about. So we paused it here and we would love for you to join us next time to hear the latter half of their story. We want to thank Jessica so much for speaking so candidly about your family's very personal story. I know that by your willingness to share details about Autumn's passing and what you would have done differently will not only impact parents, but hopefully those that work with bereaved families as well. And Lily's very difficult and long NICU journey is inspiring, and I know it will help other NICU families. On our next episode, Jessica and I continue our discussion, and she shares what it was like for the Wolf family once they brought Lily home, how they survived through COVID with a ventilator-dependent child, how Lily is adjusting today after her laryngotracheal reconstruction surgery, and more about their new addition to the family, Sweet Nolan. You will not want to miss it. To get in touch with Jessica or to learn more about their life and to see examples on how they did their home, stroller, and car ventilator setup, as well as examples from other families, find her at Lily's Little Lungs on Instagram or find the link in our show notes where you will find all of the links mentioned in the episode plus more information on our sponsors. Just head to empoweringnicuparents.com forward slash episode 37. Thank you for tuning in to the Empowering NICU Parents podcast and have an amazing day. Remember, once empowered with knowledge, you have the ability to change the course. 
Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Empowering NICU Parents Podcast. For the show notes and any links mentioned in the episode, head to empoweringnicuparents.com. I would love to hear more from you on the topics you want to hear, so make sure you let me know in the comments section. Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a rating. Five stars would be awesome so we can help other NICU families. Remember, if you have any questions or concerns with your NICU baby, please consult their medical care team. Until next time, friends. Bye.